Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Thank you for being here with me, whether it's your first time listening to the show or you are a long-time listener. I realize that sometimes this show isn't very easy to digest. I know that that's the whole point of why I created the podcast, but I still struggle with it sometimes. I, uh, I feel like sometimes I'm on two opposite ends of a spectrum. One of the ends is like complete and total codependency, wanting everyone to like me, wanting to be inclusive of everyone, wanting to be super empathetic, wanting to only say things that I know people will understand. And on the other end of the spectrum is a lot of rage that I feel and a lot of impassioned feeling around injustices in the world. And it's really hard to embody both of those qualities. Um, and I think they fit together. I think my, my, my passion and my rage is all fueled by my desire to love everyone and empathize with everyone and hold space to everyone. But it's just hard, I think, especially in a podcast, in any form, social media. I mean, I think it's the easiest to do in person. But even that's hard, you know? How do you say to someone, hey, I love you and accept you, but also do you maybe want to look at these things or, Hey, I love you and accept you, but I think you're being an idiot right now. (laughs) Or I don't think you're looking at the full picture or I think you're having an emotional reaction. It's very hard. I think to be on the receiving end of that or the giving end of that, regardless of, of where you're at to hold both of those two things simultaneously is, is challenging. And of course, something I speak about in the podcast all the time. Um, but just because I talk about it, And just because I try to embody it doesn't necessarily mean that I get it right all the time or even that there is a right way to do it. And I've definitely been in a little bit of a funk for the past week um, for multiple reasons, but one of them was grappling with this. I wanted to apologize if I inadvertently offended anyone or insulted anyone or alienated anyone with the introduction to my episode last week about the non-binary movement. Um, I had just read an article in the bathtub that morning and I was feeling pretty passionate about it. It was rare that I am able to read people writing about some of the things that I think about because they're so politically incorrect, because they're so triggering and unconventional. And so when I read something like that, I feel emboldened in a way. And I came right in here to record that intro And it's ironic because I think I was so afraid of being misunderstood. I was so afraid of people thinking that what I was saying was that 
you know, people are non-binary to get likes on social media or that people who are, who identify as non-binary, who have vulvas or vaginas are somehow cheapening femininity, all of which I was accused of, by the way. I'm surprised I didn't get more hate mail than I did, but the flavor of the feedback that I did receive, at least the negative feedback I received was very much of, it sounded like you said that you don't believe in non-binary people or you don't feel like they have a reason to exist when, of course, that's not what I said, but I do understand how it could be taken that way because I think a lot of the things that I say, although I try to ground them in sort of like logical rigor in a way, they're emotional because they involve our feelings, they involve our identity, they involve our lives, and this elicits an emotional response. Sometimes that emotional response can be a reaction to something I didn't actually say, which I really truly don't think I said any of those things in my intro, but I do understand the reaction. Um, and I think I anticipated that reaction. And I think that's why I went to great lengths to ground my point in like 900 different personal anecdotes and, um, academic literature and all of this stuff. Um, so I was like, uh, trying to disclaim my opinion and support my opinion with all of this <clears throat> bulky shit which I think in the end was too much information. It gave people who heard what I said more opportunity to latch on to something that maybe they thought they disagreed with or they thought I meant something that I didn't say and that made them upset or made them feel like I was just flat out being some sort of exclusionary bitch or something, um, which is silly because it's like the only reason I included all of those different anecdotes and all of those stories and all of that's supporting literature, proof or ideas or whatever I was doing was because I was so afraid just to ask a simple question because I was afraid of being canceled or I was afraid of being rejected or I was afraid of being misunderstood. Um, and I think thinking back on it, I actually could have just been a little bit more pointed in what I said and more direct in what I said without all of that other bulky stuff. Um, and maybe my point would have come across a little easier or a little clearer, rather. Um, if you didn't hear the introduction, uh, you are welcome to go listen to it if you'd like, um, but no pressure. Basically, I was just trying to ask a question that was influenced by my own feelings and experiences, but also by this article that I wrote, which was, is it possible that by rejecting a binary, by rejecting terms, that we are inadvertently reinforcing that binary? So what would happen if the non-binary movement was, hey, you say this is what a woman is like, I'm a woman, but I don't agree with you, I'm going to reconstruct and redefine that term, versus I see man and woman as they have been constructed in our awful patriarchal capitalist environment, and I reject that construction, I'm something else entirely. So really, all that's all I was trying to say, of course, that one point or that one question involves a myriad of different things from the idea of the social construction of our identities to begin with, how man and woman interact with feminine and masculine. It's complex, and that's why I made it complex, because I didn't want it to be overly simplistic, but I actually think in the end, by adding too many details and too much bulkiness to the main question that I was trying to ask that I may have inadvertently alienated people. So for that, I apologize. Um, it's hard. This this podcast is beneficial because it's not a piece of writing that I can worry about and perfect and make sure I deliver in a very like clean, concise way. 
uh, the podcast is very much stream of thought. And I think sometimes things are more important said in that way, right? When we don't think about it, when we don't edit it, when it's not suffering from our own imposter syndrome. I could just read an article and come on here and talk about something. And obviously in a non-podcast or a non-social media environment where I could bring that up amongst friends, we could have an intellectual conversation about it. We could debate about it. We could throw around different ideas. This is just me with a thought projecting it out into the ether. Uh, and I think it's a really unfortunate um, side effect of this whole cancel culture thing that we're not able to engage in any sort of a conversation or a debate. So someone can hear something, they have an emotional reaction to what they thought I said, they react because of that emotional response and make a judgment call about whether or not they should listen to me or whether or not I'm a good person or not. Um, and it's hard because I want to operate in this space. I want to have a podcast. I want to share my ideas and share the podcast over social media, but also the way that these things are constructed uh, don't allow for what I want to accomplish. So Sometimes I feel like I'm just like running around in circles trying to have nuanced conversations in spaces where nuanced conversations don't happen. But I'm going to keep going because I do think it's important. I do think a lot more of you understand what I'm saying than don't understand. And I really appreciate that. And I feel grateful to have a community that is so supportive and is so understanding. I'm sort of consistently shocked that I don't get more hate mail. Um, than I do, which which tells me that either you all are afraid to tell me I'm an idiot or you see where I'm coming from. Hopefully it's the latter. But one thing I did want to bring up, which I've said before again, but I think this whole thing helped me to clarify it for myself. Um, I was really upset because Lena, who I had on my podcast last week, got some of these responses herself. So her listeners saw that she was on my podcast, heard what I said in my introduction, didn't agree with it, didn't align with it, and then went at her uh, to sort of talk about it. And that upset me because I really respect her and I was really grateful to have her on the podcast. And I know that she on her channel, as other people do, you know, were those of us with podcasts or channels or whatever the fuck are these online personalities, these online spaces, I think we're all trying to do something different. Some of us are aligned, but I think all of our communities are representative of, of us in some way. And I know that Lena's community is very inclusive and very validating of all people and all feelings and all identities and all language. And that's a fucking vital imperative step of the process of becoming a human. I think so many of us are on a similar journey of being raised in a way by parents, by society, et cetera, where we don't know who we are. We're told we don't have a right to be who we are. We're told our feelings are invalid. Um, we're asked to conform and forced to conform in many ways. And then there's this process where we realize that's happened and that's horrible. And the only way, I think the first step in crawling out of that is to touch base with our own intuition again, learn how to trust ourselves, recognize that we can and are, we can be and we are whoever we feel that we want to be and whoever we feel that we are. And being able to feel valid in that is, again, imperative and vital in this process. And there are so many people like Lena, I think Kylie Macbeth, who I've had on the podcast as well. I think Chani Nicholas, who's an astrologer who I haven't had on the podcast, but I sort of see their communities as being very much focused on that step of the journey of like, hey, 
you deserve to be here and you also deserve to be whoever you want to be. And that's a really, really important phase. I think that's the phase of where safe spaces are necessary. It's the, the place where you rest and you feel like you're held and you know that you're validated and you feel strong within yourself. But I do think this community that I have, this podcast, which is actually something that Lena helped me to realize, um, and Lena was very respectful and very kind around all of this and certainly um, didn't accuse me or attack me of anything, just wanted to clarify what I'd said for her audience because she's worked really hard to be so inclusive and she didn't want anyone to feel like she was excluding them for whatever language they use to identify themselves. Of course, I don't think this is what I was doing either, but I do realize that my delivery or the phase of the journey that I focus on doesn't necessarily focus on that part. Um, so I think people think that like, because the phase that I'm focused on, because this community is thinking about like, how do we emotionally react to something? How is it that we're triggered by something? And then what do we do about that trigger? Do we move toward it? Do we say, no, I don't feel safe here. I'm going to leave. Of course, for those of you who have listened for a while, you know that this podcast is all about moving toward that trigger is all about self-reflecting of like, Hey, this person said something that upset me or that I heard in a certain way and I had this emotional reaction, does that mean that they're abusive? Does that mean that they're being cruel? Does that mean that they're being exclusionary? Or does that mean I'm just having an emotional reaction based on my own past trauma? And is it not best for me to actually recognize that this isn't like re-raping me or this isn't re-traumatizing me? I might be having a similar emotional reaction, but by moving toward it and exploring it and self-reflecting about my own insecurities and the ways in which I might feel unsafe, that that will lead me to a more like whole and inclusive version of a person, one who considers and validates both emotions and logic, um, both reactions and the intellectual process of moving beyond the reaction. So I focus on that, but that doesn't mean that I don't think or don't find it valuable that we honor our feelings, um, because that's vital, as I've said like a hundred times already, <laughs> uh, because I know, and I know this because I went through this process, you know, I, it was very, very important for me to touch base once again with my feelings and know that they were valid and also feel the pain associated with all of that. So like feel all the grief that I didn't get to feel as a child, feel all the pain that I suffered as a result of people or culture uh, that hurt me, That to feel that and to process that and to metabolize that and to digest that is needed in order to move on to the next step, which is to be like, okay, now what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I move forward in the world? How do I evolve my own being? How do I fix myself to fix the world? Yada, yada. I talk about this stuff all the time. And I really don't want anyone to see this podcast as like, because I think it can, right? The, the feeling of like, well, well, you shouldn't be triggered. You should move beyond your triggers. I think can be an avoidance mechanism of feeling emotions. I've told this story before a while ago, but when I decided to stop seeing my therapist, who I saw very regularly through my entire dark night of the soul, which was like a couple of years, um, when it came time for me to transition out of that relationship and stop seeing her, I remember going into her office and saying, 
saying that, you know, I feel like I'm at a point in my life, I'm about to travel, my financial situation has changed, I feel like it's time for me to transition out of this, but I have a lot of guilt about that. And she sort of reassured me and said, I didn't have to feel guilty about it. And she said, you know, how does it feel that this is maybe the last time we're going to be seeing each other? And I very quickly responded back and I said, well, I don't really think it's like the last time. Like, I think I can come back and I'd love to continue this. Like, we're just taking a pause and, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And she said, is that reaction an avoidance of your feelings and any sadness that you might have of this period of time in your life and in our relationship? coming to a close, even if it picks up in a different way later on. And she was so right. And I immediately broke down and cried. Um, And I think that's a perfect example of like, you can have a feeling about something, you can honor your emotions and your feelings, and you can also choose to integrate logic and intellect in order to move forward. Those things are not mutually exclusive. And I really don't want anyone to think that my push toward logic, my push toward moving above and beyond triggers is accusing people of being triggered or saying that people's emotional reactions aren't valid. It's definitely not what I'm doing. Um, but it's, it's hard to do what I am doing without people assuming that that's what I mean. So I wanted to clarify that now, and I'll probably clarify that later on. And I would really love to find a way. It's like we live in a society where we're so lacking in community. And I think the first phase of a lot of us finding community is within that emotional space, within that space of, oh my God, I've been hurt so badly and this isn't my fault. And we rally around that and we find others who feel the same way, who feel that same rage, who feel that same anger, who feel that same pain about being treated unfairly. And we latch on to that as the community because we think, that's all we have. And I think that there is a community beyond that too. I think there's a community that is inclusive of emotions and is inclusive of triggers, but is also questioning, is doing that thing that I brought up in the beginning of the introduction. You know, how can I say, I hear you, I see you, I accept you, and I love you, but also here are the ways that I think you're blind to this because of your emotions. Here are the ways I think you're projecting. And when we have a society that's uh, lacking in both emotional validation and in community, it makes sense why we construct communities about this. But I do have some concerns in the long term because I think this is the basis of a lot of ideological, social justice, identitarian movements are creating communities and creating a set of principles based on emotional validation. And I think our communities need to be inclusive of emotional validation, but not explicitly about that. You know, I, I there is a guy here in this town that I live in, a very small town. Most of the time people are pretty respectful of the whole mask thing, but there's one cafe in town where just literally nobody wears masks. Um, and I overheard a conversation between two people. One of them was asking the other person why you don't wear a mask. And he said, I I don't wear a mask because I just fucking hate them. They're so uncomfortable. And my immediate reaction, I'm standing there wearing a mask. Like, I also fucking hate them. They're super uncomfortable. My emotional response to this situation is to say, fuck it, rip it off my face and throw it on the floor and step on it. Like, that's how I feel. That's my emotional 
response toward this situation. But my logical response, my intellectual response includes both, I hate this, but also I've weighed all of the different options here around my own protection, around other people's protection, around the fact that I just don't really know what's going on. And my feeling of not liking this isn't a good enough reason not to do it. And I think that's what I try to poke at so much around these things, whether it's about race, whether it's about gender, whether it's about sexuality. I try to like poke at how might you be framing your life around your emotional reaction exclusively and how may that be preventing you from living as a full individuated person and operating in a world where you understand that so much of being an adult means doing things even when you're uncomfortable. I think unfortunately we've like missed out a lot on a proper upbringing. I think that's probably a lesson we all should have learned when we were kids, but we didn't even get to the point where we felt valid in our emotions to move to the next phase of incorporating our emotions alongside logic and intellect. And so I think we're going through that now sometimes where it's like we're reverting to some sort of childhood mentality, learning how to be emotionally validated and learning that our feelings are okay, which is something we should have learned as a kid, but we're learning it later. And then we think maybe because we're learning it as an adult, that that's the way to be an adult, but it's just one part of being an adult. And I think being able to ascertain the difference between, you know, you said something to me that reminded me of the emotion of being treated poorly or being treated unfairly but I realize either that's not at all what you did or at the very least that's not what you meant and so now I have to deal with like okay well how do I move forward through through the situation with this person you're not abusing me you just reminded me of what it felt like to be abused and that is the work to me is to distinguish the difference between how we might be triggered from things that have happened before and how that may not be occurring in this very moment now. And I think that is a very, very important, if not the most important piece of the work that I'm doing. And I think the work that we all need to be doing is to incorporate all these different facets of quote unquote truth and feeling into the way that we live our lives. We can honor our grief, we can honor our pain, we can honor our triggers, and we can move beyond those. We don't have to stay in a victimized position. I think we think that the only way to like take responsibility sometimes or to be empowered is to reject those feelings associated with the fact that it's not our fault, but I don't think that's true. I think we can understand that it's not our fault, but we also have to accept that it's not anybody else's fault. We can't move through the world pointing fingers, feeling victimized. I don't, I think that revokes our agency. And I worry that these movements, not people, not the people within the movements who have varying degrees of identity and history, but the movements in and of themselves are based on victimhood. And I worry that if we focus on that, that all we do is uh, switch the script that we move toward compensatory injustice rather than justice. If we don't sit down and talk to each other, admit that our realities are both constructed and something we were born with and that I can be a woman and you can be a woman, but we can identify in totally different ways, unless we're able to do that and manage all of those different pieces together, 
I'm not sure we're actually going to try to, we're actually going to be successful in solving these problems we want to solve. And so my, my rhetoric, my framing sounds like I'm anti-progress or I'm anti-justice and I'm not. The one thing I agree with across the board with all of these movements is that I think every person on this planet deserves equal rights in this world and deserves to live a full whole life. But the strategy for which we get there is something I very much disagree with in opposition to a lot of these movements. I do think there are many paths to a solution. And so this podcast is an expression of the unconventional path, the unpopular path, the politically incorrect path. I feel very grounded in that path. I think it's the right one. Even if the society at large has already decided there's another way there, I think it's my own personal responsibility to question it if I truly disagree in a logical and intellectual way, which I do. But I know that sometimes that's going to mean people don't like me and that I might create enemies and that my words are going to be misconstrued. And that sucks, but I have to move forward. I have to lean more toward my own self-assurance and my own self-worth, even though sometimes it feels like I'm fucking pushing like nine brick walls in order to do that. Um, but I have to, because I know that's the right thing to do. And I know so many of you have been on a similar journey and I am really grateful that I was able to start this podcast and that we were all able to find each other and, I do think there are more and more people coming out and saying these things, certainly in a way that wasn't happening when I started this podcast two years ago. I hope to have more of those people on my podcast. I mean, I feel like that's all of the, the conversations I've had are these sort of unconventional ones, but really more specifically like critiquing some of the facets of identity, politi identity politics that we have now and cancel culture and all of that. There are people that are specifically talking about that and I am relieved and grateful and I hope that we can all come to a much better, more loving, inclusive and understanding place in the long run, which will inevitably lead to justice and equality for all regardless of how different we are and how different our backgrounds are and how different we identify. That's what I hope for. And I know we all do. So that brings me to my guest today, Marin Morgan, who's a close friend of mine. She, I met her because she listened to the podcast initially, and then we met in real life um, and became friends. And I'm very, very inspired by Marin. I, I feel like I've finally reached the point in my life where I'm no longer the younger person in my universe or the youngest person in my world. And there are these like adult young people uh, in my circle that are so fucking cool and inspire me and make me reflect about my own stuff. And we can just sort of mirror each other in that way. I think Marin approaches her growth uh, as a person in a very similar way that I do. Sometimes she says things and she's like, we were on a, a rafting trip once and she was on a paddleboard and she was sort of caught up with the rest of us and was crying. And we're like, what happened? She's like, I don't know. I just had one of those like, like, oh my God, the universe is so complex and it's so beautiful, but it's so painful. It's so beautiful. And I just felt it all at the same time. <laughs> it's like, I could not understand an emotion more than what you just expressed. Uh, it's just sort of 
yeah, validating for me to see someone else express things and feel things in such a similar way. I'm sure there's so many of you out there and I know I've met a bunch of you, but there's something just about the way Marin explains things or deals with things that, um, yeah, that I'm really grateful for and gives me so much hope for the future. Ironically, you know, Marin feels similarly to me in terms of her fear of being misunderstood or being canceled. She's working on a project right now with her partner, Jake, that started off as a project about regenerative agriculture, but sort of grew to recognizing that to think that regenerative agriculture alone will solve our climate change issues or will solve our planetary issues is a very overly simplistic framework. And so she's trying to do something very difficult, which is to say that regenerative agriculture is an important tool, but we have to do a lot more than that. And we have to do the same thing that I'm talking about, which is to move ourselves out of a feeling of victimization, feeling like this happened to us, and really take some serious looks at a serious look at how we can step up to the plate and take responsibility for this and move out of a of a feeling of victimization. So basically her fear is very similar to mine. Like how can she say that regenerative agriculture is legit, but we need to do more? is I feel like very similar to me saying, how can we validate our emotions, but also know that we have to do more without pissing people off or without making people feel like while we know that that one symptom of the problem needs to be addressed, it is truly just a symptom of the problem. And we need to think a lot broader, a lot more holistically to solve these problems. And although it's hard to explain in a book, let alone a podcast, is that all of these things are interconnected you know, are the issues that we see with the planet are very aligned with the issues that we see within our population. All of these things need to be addressed in order to support each other because they were built and constructed in a way that were initially, before we fucked it up, mutually reciprocal across the board. And we've taken so many steps away from that and we're not really sure how to get back to the beginning. We keep trying to create solutions to the problem that are only really reflective of the problem overall, right? Like we can't solve problems within a broken system without addressing the system. It reminded me there was, um, I was talking to someone the other day about the whole like naturopathy world and how so often we think that by removing pills from the way that we treat disease that we're fixing the problem. But what happens if we just replace pills with supplements and we still operate within the sort of like pushy framework of solving symptoms with some sort of pill, whether it's a antidepressant or a supplement, you know, is that really doing much if the framing is the same, if the system is the same, if the, the way that we're approaching the problem is the same, does it really matter, you know, if we raise cows to eat grass or not? Does it really matter if there's something Clementine Clementine Morgan says, who was on this podcast several episodes back, but she has a piece that she a piece of writing that she always shares about how like we can't claim that we want to end police brutality and defund the police if all of us are acting like cops to each other. Like we're not actually addressing the system. And I, we really need to address the system. And I think addressing the system means that we have to be really fucking uncomfortable sometimes. And we have to recognize the extent to which we are complicit in these problems and that we can't solve them simply by stop by not eating meat. We can't solve them by simply feeling valid in our emotions or redefining 
a gender stereotype or a, a label or a pronoun. These are all important, but they're only parts of the puzzle. And so I think Marin and I tried the best we can to explore the sort of overarching system here, but it is very complex and uh, would require decades upon decades of exploration in, in order to explain it thoroughly. Anyway, that is all I will say about that. Um, yeah, this is hard sometimes. I know that the demeanor or the personality that I put out over the the podcast waves is maybe one or two different real authentic parts of me, but they are only one or two parts of me. <laughs> I have many other parts. I feel like this is like getting into some weird like bodily conversation, but um, yeah, I know I know a lot of you know this already, but for those of you who forgot, we're all just real people trying to do our best and in order, I think, to have a successful podcast or a successful social media channel or a book or whatever, we have to like pick one thing and expand upon that. We can't do everything all at once. So I've picked this sort of both inclusivity, but also critiquing of triggers and emotional reactivity as, as among many other things is my focus. But that doesn't mean that I don't care about the rest of the process and that I don't honor other people who are focusing on other parts of it. I do. And I hope they do too. I hope obviously these communities that are focused on inclusion and validity are also calling out emotional reactivity or ideologically ideology as a stand in for identity. Um, I think most of the time, unfortunately that isn't happening, but I'm willing to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that it is. So um, before we get into this episode, if you would like to support the podcast, we have a very vibrant, uh, active Patreon community, which I am very grateful for. It's so nice to see that community expand. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Patreon, basically it's a place where you can support the work that I do so that I don't have to support this podcast financially through advertisements or something else that feels totally lacking in alignment for me, which advertising certainly does. Uh, so this is Patreon is basically a place where you can help people who have a hard time making money with what they do, mainly artists, musicians, podcasters, writers, etc. If you have a few extra bucks to spare, you can support them in the work that they do. And so that way they basically are answering to you and, and to nobody else. Um, and also in addition to donating and supporting their work, you get access to various perks. For me, that is, we have a book club that we do with patrons. We're in the middle of reading Cosmos and Psyche right now. The book club ends in the end of January, but you are still welcome to join if you would like. Definitely enough time still to read that book. It's big, but if you're a fast reader, you should do it. Um, we have patron-led seminars. The first one is coming up in just a couple of days. Um, Isabel, who's one of my patrons, is going to be teaching everyone about seasonal foraging uh, and maybe some other um, things like that in the future, how to make tinctures, homemade tinctures and medicines, how to ferment, pickle, etc. Um, I'm actually going to be teaching a workshop about astrology. This is the first time I'm announcing this, but I'm going to be doing an Astrology 101 workshop thing because I would like to, as I've mentioned, talk more about astrology on this podcast and also 
give some of my friends and some other patrons the opportunity to teach more advanced workshops on Patreon. But I feel like in order for that to happen, someone needs to do the like astrology basics course. Um, and I actually really like teaching that part of astrology. So I think I'm going to do that. So that's going to be available to patrons at the $10 and up level. We have exclusive WhatsApp group chats, which have about 20 to 30 people in them. There's three of them so far. The third one's almost full. I'm about to start the fourth one. So if you'd like to be one of the founding members of the fourth WhatsApp group, um, please head over to Patreon and join. This is a way for you all to meet each other, interact, discuss episodes, but so many other things. I mean, we're sharing, people are sharing their artwork in there, their dreams, asking for advice, sharing their projects, getting feedback. So many of them have actually met up with each other in person. It's like basically like the Millennials Guide dating app, but like way cooler than a dating app. Um, so if you'd like to get in on that, Patreon is the place. I just got stickers too. So that's going to come online maybe today or in the next day or so. Um, T-shirts, playlists, etc. Lots of stuff going on. Lots of stuff will be added in the future. I very, very, very much support anybody who is already a part of the Patreon. Thank you so much for allowing me to do this work without you. I don't think I could survive the sort of emotional complexity of doing it. <laughs> um, if you don't have any extra money to spend or you don't want to participate in the community in that capacity, I totally understand. Another great way to support the podcast is to share an episode with your friends. Um, or if you go into iTunes, hit subscribe, scroll down past the list of all the episodes, leave some stars in a review. This helps the podcast to reach more people. And it also helps people who I reach out to who I want to have on the podcast. If they go to iTunes and they see how many people have rated it or reviewed it, they know that it's worth their time. So all of that is very, very helpful. I am going to play you out today with a song by Johnny Lang called Dying to Live. Um, I heard the song for the first time a couple years ago and it just came on randomly recently and I realized how much it was aligned with this conversation and this introduction. Um, some of the lyrics that I love. You know some people say that values are subjective, but they're just speaking words that someone else has said. And so they live and fight and kill with no objective. Sometimes it's hard to tell the living from the dead. I hope that we are able to, as a community and as a world as a human species, crawl out of a lot of this animosity and accusatory nature of how we've chosen to organize ourselves and our identities and the way we want to live in the world. I think there is another better way to do it, even encompassing the limitations of the social media world and the podcast world. Maybe it's naive, but I do truly think there's another way. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for supporting me. I really have no words to express the level of gratitude that I feel for being able to do this and that there are people that hear it and listen and learn alongside me. So thank you. Enjoy the song. Enjoy this episode. And I will catch you on the other end. Why am I fighting?
my friend Marin, who has graciously agreed to do a podcast with me on like less than 24 hours notice uh, <laughs> because I legitimately didn't have a podcast to release this week and really wanted to and was like, who do I know that could probably do this last minute who's interesting? Uh, and I guess background, uh, Marin and her partner Jake are working on a project that I have long wanted to, uh, I guess I have talked about it on my podcast, but I wanted to have you guys both on the podcast preferably in person, just because it's easier to have a conversation that way. Um, but 
we can still do that. And I can have Merit on the podcast to talk about like where you're at with the project right now and just you in general, because I think you're interesting and I think we're pretty similar. So thank you for doing this without any preparation or time. Um, oh, thank you, Anya. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, I feel like you you are proof or we're proof that like the podcast fan friendship is like a real thing because you and Jake just listened to the podcast and then came to visit us in Colorado and um, we became fast friends, which I don't think is unique per se. I feel like the podcast is like a very good filter for cool people, you know? Definitely. Um, so <clears throat> why don't you, why don't we start, if you want to just tell the audience a little bit about you, um, what you're doing in your life right now <laughs> and the project you're working on, I guess, both professionally and personally. Um, and then we can go from there. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this last night, how I would respond to this question of just who I am, because I'm like, wow, I have no credentials. I have no expertise. I'm just some random, you know, 24 year old girl in America. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of a liberating feeling to be in the space of like, that transition of figuring out who I am. So um, I don't know. I, uh, the, the main thing that I think is that's identifying me right now uh, would definitely be the project Death in the Garden. Um, and so, you know, the pro our, our project is really about, it's, it, it's, it's changed a lot over time, but fundamentally it's about us changing the way that we view the world. Um, we started the project kind of with this idea of uh, it, it almost being like a, a response to the, these vegan marketing er narratives and the, the whole vegetarian movement and all of these things that um, we just didn't feel like we're asking the right questions. Um, so it started with regenerative agriculture, which we were like gung ho about feeling like that was, that was the answer to everything. And quickly we found that it's just like a lot more complex than that. So the, the project has become more of a multimedia project with, um, we have a podcast, we're going to have a film, we have all ty types of like writing material that I've done. Um, but really it's about just trying to complexify our worldview and, you know, embrace more concepts of holism, um, which, you know, is looking at the world holistically as holes within holes within holes and having that, uh, that type of context through the way, through which you use, you know, you view the world. It also allows you to, uh, embrace a lot more nuance in the world. And we just feel like, you know, more than you were kind of mentioning it on one on your solo podcast more than revolution we need evolution and i think that's sort of what our project is aiming to do is um just provide a framework and resources for people to be able to to look at the world a little bit differently um you know we're 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 like one small drop of the tsunami of change that's a good change that's hopefully coming but um yeah, I'm, I'm, we're both just really grateful to be part of this, this movement, whatever it manifests as, but just, just trying to get people to, to view the world a little bit differently. Um, yeah. and I can go into a little bit more detail about all of that <clears throat> later, or I can talk more about yeah. it now. <laughs> <That's you. laughs> yeah. Well, I, first I want to like, I think for people listening, because I feel like there's probably a lot of listeners of this podcast that are in a sort of similar life place I, to you. Um, and I really was sort of 
uh, struck by the sort of like courage and bravery that you had. It's not like you had like the resources and the tools and like all this money to set out and like create some multimedia documentary project. Um, and in fact, the first point of our communication was you reaching out to me before you like took the sleep to ask for guidance. Um, so I'd love if you could just talk about like that process for you, what you did in order to live this life and, um, do this project, which I know when you bought your van, which I like you to talk about, um, that this wasn't necessarily what you thought was going to happen, but just that whole thing of like, once you sort of commit to your own life and to your own like authentic path, that that shit just sort of falls right in front of you. Um, yeah, to like an insane degree. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, so I guess I can talk a bit about, um, sort of my own dark night of the soul and how that led me here. Cause it all happened within the, the last year, basically. Um, mm -hmm. I, I went to Southeast Asia after going to college and I was very, very depressed in college the whole time, really unhealthy psychologically and physically all of, I just, I, I wasn't aligned. I was that, that much was very, very clear. Um, but then I went to Southeast Asia for a few months uh, last summer. And when I got back, I, finally got out of a really toxic relationship where I was equally as toxic to the other person as he was to me. Um, and I finally like took a really hard look at myself and identified that, that it was that I was the common denominator in my suffering. And that, 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 that realization for me allowed everything else to fall. Like it was like, oh, well, I'm also the common denominator in all of these other ways that I've been unhappy. I've been blaming the world rather than taking responsibility for my life. So I, um, you know, I, I, I kind of made this plan to go to uh, Washington State to get a ma my master's degree. I had all these these plans or wash, uh, whatever, UW. <laughs> and I had all these like grand plans, but I was still kind of trying to fit within that conventional path because I didn't. I didn't feel like I had enough evidence to, or, or support to feel like I could do anything contrary to that conventional path. Mm. Um, and so I was, you know, I was, I was in this stage of transformation and then that's when I met Jake and he kind of was like, saw the real me underneath all of the, the shit that I was trying to pretend to be, which is like, you know, I, I was trying to fit into this mold of the way that the world worked or that I was taught that it was that, that it worked. And he was like, no, all that stuff is bullshit. And, and I, it's, it's a part, part of me that I knew the whole time was so off. That's why, that's why I was so depressed is because I was so unaligned and so unwilling to take the risks and be ballsy enough to live the life that I wanted. I was terrified of my life, I think. I was terrified of like the potential that I could have if I actually right. decided to be who I actually am. Um, but yeah, so then it was like right before coronavirus hit that I like had reached out to you and I was like, I really wanna buy a van, but my parents are gonna be pissed. And you know, you, you were kind of just like, do it. <laughs> you know, you were really supportive, <laughs> but you also really validated where that, you know, how much that support was, how much I needed that support to be able to do this thing. But then, so I just bought my van and, um, it was, I spent all the money that I had in my bank account. It was all the money I had to, to buy it. It was $2,000, my van Rosie. Um, and yeah. And then, and then it was like coronavirus hit and I lost my job and I was like, oh shit. Okay. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
But then Jake had been talking about wanting to do this documentary. And then shortly after that time, when we kind of, Jake and I kind of talked about it, we went and visited you in Colorado. And that's sort of where it was born. The, the idea to like really just go for it. We're like, what the fuck else are we doing with our lives right now? You know? And so then, yeah, so, the, so we just scrapped together what we had and what we could what we could use to try to make this project. We've been really, really scrappy with it. Um, but it's been, it's been super fun. And it definitely like, um, it, it, it's funny because I, I feel like the way that I describe it sometimes makes it, does make it seem like I have this backing by funders and stuff. And, yeah. like, <laughs> and, and no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's been great. It's been, it's it, it, the, the transformation from this time last year to now it's like completely night and day I don't even recognize that girl she is yeah but, um, I get it <laughs> did I answer that question yeah. well <laughs> yeah of course um yeah it's it's interesting because I definitely like in my own life experienced that process of basically saying like fuck it I have no resources like not really any support I don't know where I'm going but I'm just gonna do this anyway like I feel pulled in this direction even if I don't know where it ends up I'm going to do it. And of course, once I really like honestly, authentically committed to that, didn't just like pretend I did, the synchronicities just like appeared and reappeared and appeared and appeared and appeared. Um, and yeah. like everything I was moving towards sort of just like manifested in front of me. And it's been a fascinating, really like joyous experience on my end to sort of witness you on that process. Because I feel like, you know, like we there was this one situation, I think, where we had said like, oh, we want to talk about you guys and the project on our podcast. Like, let, send me a list of people that you're still looking for or something. Um, and you said one of the people that you were still looking for was like someone who was a hunter, but who had a sort of like more nuanced perspective about hunting and could speak eloquently about death and um, was doing it in sort of like a regenerative, like ancestral way. And we got that list. And I feel like maybe two days later, we met that person like that person came into our lives and we were like hey Meredith and Jake I think we have yeah. that person um and he is someone who you guys I guess you haven't probably gone hunting with him yet but you're in Montana sort of partially at least it seems for that purpose yeah yeah um so yeah, yeah there that, was there that... was some some unfortunate stuff with us trying to figure that out but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's all good <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah it's cool I I think you know it's something that people I think reach out to me about all the time like how do you know it's gonna work or I'm afraid it's gonna work and I just feel like anyone who I know in first of all my personal experience but then anyone who I actually know in my life who has taken that leap like the same exact thing has happened for them as well um so that's, you know, I don't know, reassuring and inspiring in a way. Um, uh, so I want to talk more about the project for sure. Um, but I want to back it up a little bit with a sort of broader conversation about victimhood and responsibility. And you had reached out to me relatively recently. I forget what provoked you to do so, um, but sort of told me a story about how my podcast uh, started out being kind of triggering to you and how you sort of ended up having this realization about your own framing of the situation, your own framing of your life. And um, I thought it was such a 
I don't know, moving and probably pretty common uh, situation. Um, and your perspective on it was so fucking like mature and, and brave and made me feel better for like saying triggering things on my podcast. <laughs> um, but I thought uh, I'd love for you to talk about that. And then I thought it was just, it would be a good sort of framework to talk about regenerative agriculture and the planet as well as, as it relates to how we interact with that. So I'm going to shut up and let you tell that story. But <laughs> Yeah. So um, I guess the long story short, I uh, was sexually assaulted at a music festival a number of years ago. And it was a right around the time then like shortly after probably the next summer, the me too movement happened. And I, you know, I, I almost wanted to cancel this person and like, like deplatform him, tell everybody. But for some reason I held back and I didn't. Um, and I think the reason why is because there was at least subconsciously, I think I knew that the, the it wasn't as simple as this dude raped me or, you know, this dude did this, this dude is a bad person. Um, it's and I, and I won't go into like the super nitty gritty details about it all, but um, around that time, especially after Me Too happened, it would be like people would people would bring up rape and try to have like nuanced conversations about rape and stuff. And I was the person who would shut down the conversation and be like, "You don't know because this happened to me. Like you don't get to talk about this. You especially to men. I was like, you don't get to have an opinion about this. So it was very very silencing to a lot of people. Um, and then it wasn't until I think I heard you talk about the Me Too movement on the um, on your podcast that I realized how much I had hadn't metabolized actually what happened to me. You know, I talked about it in therapy with my therapist and come to these places of empowerment, but I wasn't enacting them in my day to day life. I was I was being empowered during therapy, but then the moment someone brought up rape or something, I was shut down and you know, and, and that's a pretty like toxic victim mentality to be sitting in is like, if anyone talks, wants to talk about this or has an opinion about this, that's not even related to my experience. That person needs to stop talking because they're triggering me. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize for a long time that that's what I was doing to people and that, that I was uh, shutting down conversations that are actually really important to have because when I heard you talk about it and I kind of had that like triggered feeling, but I was like, I like Anya so much. How can I be triggered by her? And I was like, <laughs> and it just made me, it really made me think about what was going on with me. And the fact was that that wound that was being exposed um, by what you, your criticisms of the Me Too movement, I knew that they were true. What, what you were saying was true. It was the, the, the easy answer was for me to blame and demonize this person and act as if I was this hor like this victim of some horrible monstrosity. Um, but the reality is it's like it's not that simple because it's so it's so related to um, the culture in which we're, we all grow up in in America that's very sexually suppressed and people aren't given actually real guidance about how to interact with sexual with, with sexual situations and so you know I, I tried to I tried to give this guy sort of the benefit of the doubt and rather than you know vilifying him I wanted to see him as a person who might have just fucked up and might have just made a really poor judgment call um 
and maybe didn't didn't understand the nuances of 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 consensual sex and and there, a lot of people don't want to hear that like there I feel like there's this narrative now where everything's available online so you have no excuse to do anything that's counter to what the information is online and it's just like it that's not actually how the world works like we're taught things yeah. in our real lives that condition us in ways that you know you, you you're not necessarily just going to like read an article online and be like oh that's what consent is I didn't realize you know it's like it's just not as, as simple as that and also on my end of things you know there, there is a level of responsibility not to say that all people who experience sexual assault have a level of responsibility to what happened to them or that that needs in, is in any way victim blaming my frame of mind is that the moment you posit yourself as a victim, you lose all agency. You lose all possible empowerment because suddenly that other person has so much control over you. And while, you know, I could go back and I, I could have like punched him in the face or something like that or screamed or whatever. Um, you know, there, there's ways that I could have gotten out of it. It's, it's not even that's that's not even the part of it that I think is important. The part of it that's important is that me taking responsibility for it allows me to put my, never put myself in a situation like that ever again. And whereas if I'm a victim to it, then I can remain in this sort of weird, weird nebulous of like, you know, if, if I'm attacked, then I'm, you know, it's sort of hard to explain, but it was just, it, it made me feel like I, I realized that I wasn't taking agency over the situation. I was describing this as a thing that happened to me rather than an experience that I had that I can learn from and I can grow from and I can, you know, change the way that I view things. And because for a long time I was like that same type of feminist that just like hates men and because this thing had happened to me and I'd had all these really shitty relationships and then it's like, wait a minute, but (laughs) there are good men in the world. And I'm obviously not finding them. That doesn't mean that that all men are bad or, you know, it's just, it's not a simple enough answer. And I definitely had the experience. I think a lot of my um, adolescence and young adulthood of masculinizing myself in the name of feminism rather than really embracing the, the empowered, mature feminine um, you know, which, which is just an expression of internalized misogyny at the end of the day to, yeah. to like lean into those, those roles that are really accepted and, and promoted in society rather than being like, wait a minute, what am I, what's unique about my womanhood and how yeah. is that empowering? How is that brave? How is that strong? Um, you know, and so I, so, and I, and I think that sort of goes into this, these notions of like the, the toxic, I feel like the toxic femininity and toxic masculinity, those things like co-evolve together. And the toxic masculinity that sexually assaulted me, like couldn't have done that without the toxic femininity that had me being submissive and, you know, not, uh, not empowered you know, in this state of, uh, just not feeling like I had strength and purpose and agency as a woman. And so, and and then, then, you know, that leads into that victimhood, which I, which I also believe is, is like a shadowy expression of the feminine. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I feel like two points about that. Like, on the one hand, in your case, I feel like you could sort of see your role or your uh, at the aspect of responsibility that you had within that situation. But I think even in situations where the woman is completely not at fault or or anybody for that matter who is the quote-unquote victim of like abuse or toxicity or some terrible situation it's like even if it's very clear on paper that you played no role in this type of event which is certainly one you know um example of these types of situations I think even still you know I think a lot of people who participate in the sort of like conventional PC feminist rhetoric have never even experienced an event like this. You know, it doesn't even matter. It's just like women were treated poorly or I was treated poorly. And so therefore I'm going to flip the script and just like promote this sort of compensatory injustice instead of actually moving toward equality or understanding or empathy. Um, And I think that's definitely a huge part of the environmental movement issues that we have is like we feel guilty or like it's our fault or we feel like victims to this like shit that's going down with our planet um and instead of actually like taking real responsibility for stepping up and doing something even though clearly like each of us as an individual I mean of course like we buy plastic bottles or whatever but it's not our fault you know like (laughs) we're not victims in this situation um even though some people could define it as such but we still have a responsibility and I feel like regardless of whether or not we played a role in wrongdoing I just don't see any examples of someone just like pouting and blaming and being angry as a productive form of change for anything, you know, whether it's like race or sex or gender or um, any of that stuff. And I think also I'd like you to speak to this too, because I have another friend who I've been speaking to a lot about this. She was in a sort of long-term, pretty emotionally and psychologically abusive relationship. And she's very much of this mindset of like, I'm not a victim. Like I participated. I had this fawning reaction toward this person. Um, And then she reached out to me recently being like, I just want to make sure that by um, recognizing my own role and my responsibility and how I want to move forward, that I'm not inadvertently and simultaneously preventing myself from like feeling the feelings of the situation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, how can we both say like, it's my responsibility to move forward. It's my responsibility to have agency, but that doesn't mean that that process is saying the situation didn't hurt me or that I didn't feel like a victim at one time or that someone treated me poorly, you know, like both of those things can coexist. Um, right. It's, it, I think a lot of it is about rewriting the stories a little bit, you know, because I've had a lot of relationships that were very toxic, but I left them with this feeling of like, oh, that guy, he was so awful. What a, what a, what a terrible boyfriend yeah. without, without having the self-awareness to understand my role in it and how I was contributing to possessiveness, uh, to, to, you know, toxicity about wanting to... Um, help them. I, my, my sort of most toxic quality is this like very, I, I want to fix people. I want to like make people be what I want them to be. And I have, and I've been learning a lot about myself recently. And one of the things too, is that I fantasize a lot. And so I've, I, there were a lot of relationships in the past where I set them up for failure 
because I had these really fantastical illusions about who that person was and I held them to that standard within the relationship. Um, but if, if you don't, the thing is, it's like, if you don't come to terms with your responsibility in perpetuating that kind of behavior, you'll never have a relationship that doesn't look like that because, because right. yeah, like in those moments, I definitely felt like a victim. I definitely felt like, like hurt by those people. And, and yeah, they did some shitty things and for sure. And, but you know, that, that, that doesn't negate my responsibility and you can, you can grieve that you can be angry about that and you can, you can get through that. But at the end of the day, you have to reach that acceptance stage of accepting the situation as objectively as you possibly can. And at the end of the day with, with my toxic relationships, it was like, okay, if I look at this objectively, I let these people into my life again and again and again. And I view, I viewed myself as someone who was more infallible than I was. And that's not fair. It's not, it's not fair for me to have these projections for people, these super high standards. Some, it's not fair for me to want to like offer charity to people and have that be like a transactional relationship where then they love me because I care for them, you know? And you know, a lot of those things you learn from through childhood and through modeling and all of these different, different modes of learning how to behave in relationships. But it wasn't until I like finally turned the mirror on myself and I was like, what are you doing to cause this? What are you Mm. doing to participate in this? You know, that's, you know, I I think that the the anger and the, the hurt and the pain and the acceptance can all exist, maybe not simultaneously, but in in stages you know it's it's that yeah. that's the the healing thing it's like you sometimes feel all these feelings at once and then sometimes sometimes you kind of reach that catharsis and yeah. you know there are still times where I like I, I think about things from my past relationships and I'm like god like that that sucks that like makes me triggered to think about it like how yeah. how much I hated that feeling that I was in but at the same time I like actively participated in that relationship and maintained it even when it was terrible. Right. Yeah. And I think like there is for me in my mind, I see nuance in the accepting of responsibility framework. Like you can use that as a way to avoid feelings and avoid pain and avoid reality and just be like, I'm really strong. That didn't upset me. You know, it's, you know, who cares? Um, Or you can use that to uh, actually, like be like, it's my responsibility to move forward and to change. But in that process, I have to confront what occurred. I have to grieve that. I have to like look at myself and talk about it and think about it and share it. But I feel like I don't see any nuance in the victimhood perspective. Like if you're just stuck in blaming and pointing fingers, to me, there's no capacity for you to self-reflect at all. In fact, I think like the whole point and the whole reason that so many of us stay in that and I think like there, I feel like social justice movements are built on that, you know, like I suffered all of these traumas and all of these injustices and I'm pissed off. And that's the framework for moving forward, um, which I don't know, I just think is really misguided and only really seeing a very, very small section of the, the overarching narrative. Yeah. And the, the thing about it, too, is victimhood like presupposes an innocence on your part and a, and a perfection on your part and infa- a, 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 an infallibility on your part. And 
that's just not accurate. That's not like, we're all very imperfect. We're all very flawed people. Right. And just the and trauma beings. alone, you know, like just the fact that we were traumatized and that we're, we're reacting from that place. Like that in and of itself means like you're going to have a role in these situations. Cause like you have feelings and past experiences to define it, you know? Right. Like, and we're all responsible for how we interact with what happens to us and how we respond to things. And, and I think that's definitely something that isn't uh, taught nearly enough is that, is that, that, that real responsibility of like, you are the only person who has agency for your life. Mm-hmm. That means that there's a lot of, a lot of responsibility tied to that. Um, right. you, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like, I could say that I was a victim to the, this conventional system of how we live and this conditioning that we all received um, on how to live your life. I could say that I'm a victim of that, but I'm not. I, 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 bottom line, I knew that it was wrong. I knew it wasn't right for me, but I went along with it because I, I wasn't brave enough to, to really confront it and confront my role in how I was allowing these these things I was I was allowing the environment to sort of instigate my own suffering when I didn't yeah. have to do that I could have I could have right. chosen a different path a long time ago and I think that the thing with victimhood is that it is just the most disempowering place that you can be because it's exactly as you said like you're totally stuck if you're yeah. allowing yourself to be a victim yeah so I'm curious how all of this um fits into because I feel like I'm only sort of understanding it in like sort of broad like non-definitive terms but how this all relates to the project that you and Jake are doing I think it's an interesting trajectory that you've both been on when I feel like when you set out to do it and I think this has actually also informed my own understanding of this issue the planet (laughs) environment and what we're going to do to fix it Um, But I know that when you guys both started off that your perspective was like, we want to create a film about regenerative agriculture and showcase how that is the way that we will address climate change and the way that we will fix these problems. And then I think on this journey, you recognized that the situation was far more complex than that. Um, And I'm curious where that how that shift occurred for you um, and how that shift also put you in a role of more you and Jake, let's say doing this project in more of a role of responsibility aside from just like illuminating a very simple solution to a problem that's may or may not be realistic. Yeah. You know, when we, when we set out on this uh, journey, we really thought we were going to just kind of give the answer to everybody about how, like, about how to fix the planet, how to fix ourselves, how to fix all of these things. And the way that I describe the climate issue, among other issues, like, I mean, because here's the reality of everything. All of these things, all of these issues that we have, they are all interconnected. Every single one of them. Social media, um, racism, climate uh, climate change, all of these things, you know, and, and all of the iterations of that. They're all part of this gigantic knot that you can pull on one part of the knot to untangle it, but it's going to be, it's going to be like tethered in place on the other side of that by something else. The only thing that we can do really is to try to tackle the knot in as many places as we can. And so regenerative agriculture provides a really, really, really good step 
in that process of untangling. Like, for example, you know, the, the processes of regenerative agriculture, they um, improve biodiversity, they improve um, uh, water infiltration, uh, carbon sequestration, animal rights. Uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. It, it, re regenerative agriculture helps rebuild ecosystems, which is vitally important for us. But at the same time, there are some very, very fundamental problems with the system in which we live. And so I don't personally believe, and, I, and I'm not a spokesperson for regenerative agriculture. I'm just a person who's learning about regenerative agriculture and all of these different things and tying, trying, to, trying to understand these things as honestly as I possibly can. Um, the, the bureaucracies and the systems and the corruption and the stratification of what is actually running the world and running our society those things aren't going to change quickly enough or with a, enough urgency. Even, even if everybody starts eating regenerative meat, it's not going to be, it's, it's not going to change the fundamental problem, which is that we are a disempowered people who are allowing ourselves to be victims to what are the, the, the people of the past kind of subject, subjected us to, which is like, there's a level of that where, you know, taking, taking it on and being like, wow, I feel really victimized by the world that I was born into. It's a, it's a step on the journey, right? Like you have to get to the place where it's like, okay, but what can I do with my life to, to mitigate the risks and the harms of all of these, these horrible things that are, that are honestly on their way for us where we are looking at an ecological and societal collapse. Um, once fossil fuel is gone, everything falls after that. And they, we don't know when that's going to happen. That it could happen tomorrow. It could happen in twenty years. We don't know. Um, but the the thing is that there's a there's a lot of narratives around of of people kind of viewing themselves as like a pestilence, that humans are just this disease, um, and that if we just didn't kill animals, if we just didn't participate in death, if we just didn't do this and this and this and this, then then we'd fix everything. And even even just so so I feel like veganism. And vegetarianism really provides that answer for people where it's like, you don't have to, this is the peaceful food. You don't have to commit to harm against animals. You're not committing harm against the planet. The reality of that is though, is, is there are people who are manipulating that narrative that mm -hmm. are making a lot of money off of industrial agriculture to, pr to promote that narrative. Um, and still then, you know, it, these people are in a place of disempowerment, right? Because they're viewing big, they're, they're viewing animal agriculture as the enemy. That is the thing that is causing climate change. That is the thing mm -hmm. that is the thing that's destroying the planet when really it's this gigantic web of things that, you know, it, it's, it's the fact that we sh ship our, ship our trash to Indonesia and that we have to blow up mountains to make solar panels and all of these things. It's our cell phones. It's our, it, it's all of these things that are, I, I feel like people don't want to give up these things or even, mm -hmm or even shift away from them even to a small degree so it's nice when there's a narrative that's like oh here's here's an easy answer here's the easy answer so you don't actually have to try that hard you don't actually have to care that much if you just stop eating meat you're good the reality yeah. of that is so of course it's a lie because you know you you look at the data and I'm not an expert on this at all but um, I've just looked at the data and it's it's wildly inaccurate and doesn't view the world from like a holistic context at all. 
Um, and, you know, people, people, and I, and I think um, specifically in the, these social justice movements, a lot of the information that people are gleaning is, is strictly from online. They're, they're, they're creating their entire worldviews behind the screen of a computer rather than actually going out into the world and interacting with people and things and uh, other beings to try to formulate their own worldview. How are they, like, people, people aren't using that intuitive felt sense to understand and articulate the world. And I think regenerative agriculture provides a really good context for responsibility and empowerment because they mm. use a holistic context and a regenerative context, which it's like, you know, the organic movement is, is an example of one of something that doesn't go far is again, it doesn't go far enough organic. You, you can do organic with pesticides and herbicides and, you know, with tilling and all of these things like, but if you actually have a regenerative mindset, you're not viewing the world and the, the people that you interact with, the non-human people that you interact with as commodities. You're viewing everything mm -hmm. as having a, having a place and having a role and having a spirit of some kind. There's definitely an animistic uh, quality to all of this that I think is profoundly helpful. Um, but it, it allows you to, to see the world a bit more clearly and so much more nuanced. And for me, that's definitely had the effect of me becoming very adverse to what I think is groupthink that's happening right now, and especially in social justice warrior sort of realms. Um, you know, it, the the public shaming is very unaligned with a regenerative context. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, canceling people and destroying them and like viewing them as non -rede non redeemable. That yeah. is viewing people as commodities. And we have created this monoculture of thought where if you deviate from that, that, that framework, then you're committing thought crime and you don't deserve to exist. You're a bad person. Right. And to me, I just, I don't see how this revolution that people want to have is going to happen if we're viewing each other as these like disposable commodities that we just use, you know, punitive justice to attack rather than, you know, viewing things regeneratively and holistically and like trying to understand where people are coming from and what's going, like what, what's the broader culture that we're trying to talk about here. Right. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have so many things to say. Um, so I feel it's interesting. I think, you know, it's, it's maybe less obvious to notice, I think, than other sort of social justice movements when it comes to planetary shit and global warming. Um, I think a really good example of this was with the release of Planet of the Humans, which was a very sort of like, kind of taking a step back and presenting a really nuanced perspective around, um, the sort of green energy movement and just what we're doing and what steps we're taking to address climate change in general. And it was fascinating to like see all of that unfold. I think the movie basically says like, by the way, these solutions, quote unquote, that we think are going to save us, um, which are, you know, like alternate forms of energy and eating less meat and all of these things um, are are not only not doing that, but sort of avoiding a core issue around that we can't solve any of these problems. It doesn't matter how many vegetables we eat or how many wind um, turbines we put up. We have too many people on the planet and the entire way that we organize ourselves as far as living and eating and consuming and traveling 
are unsustainable. And of course, in response to that, like the sort of mainstream green energy movement, climate change movement attacked the creators and by saying that they were like promoting some sort of genocide, like, oh, okay, so it's population. What are we supposed to do? Kill people? And it was such an easy out. Like, no, that isn't what I'm saying. You know, to me, it's, it was, and it's so, so similar to me saying like, how can we think about agency and responsibility when it comes to the quality of the sexes? And people say, you're a rape apologist. Like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Like, I recognize that those same arguments could be used in the opinion and mind of a rape apologist, but I'm not that. And the fact that we can't recognize the nuance there is really unfortunate. Um, and yeah, I, I'm curious to hear what you think is that sort of, I want to talk about holism more because I think this is a concept that like most people don't understand. And I do think one that regenerative agriculture exemplifies really well. And I think that's why I've always been in support of it because it just makes fucking sense to me that like the, if we allow the planet to operate and live and breathe and function as it does naturally, then one would assume that it knows what it's doing, right? And that we are, even us, and we're included in that. Like humans are a part of that system. So we play a role or can opt out and pretend like we have this sort of like patriarchal um, control over the planet in a way and that we need to move things around. Um, So yeah, I think... The issue, I mean, it's interesting because I do think, again, like regenerative agriculture is a good example of this. But the only reason that we have the issues that we have um, with agriculture are because of this larger issue um, that we're speaking about. Um, So I'd love for you could just like sort of talk about holism a little bit more, maybe both in the context of regenerative agriculture, but then in like the sort of more broader context than that. Um, Yeah. So, and again, I'm not an expert on this. I'm just very passionate about it. And I think that it really, um, it's really helped me feel like I I can understand the world a little bit better, but really what, what holism is, is, is it's a framework for viewing the world. And, and as we're all beings within this greater whole of the world, right. And then if you scale that down, we're all part of another whole of uh, whatever continent we're on, whatever country, state, city, community. And then at the end of it, um, our family communities and our individual bodies are also wholes. We're made up of, you know, bacterias and cells. And we're, we're made up of these like smaller organisms that create the organism that is us. Um, so basically the idea of holism is viewing the world as the, as if those are all interconnected because they are, you know, the, the, it's in psychology, it's kind of like, you know, you view your, you view your life as holistically as possible. So if you're depressed, it's like, okay, you know, I might need medication, but I also probably need to get more sunlight and need to get more exercise and need to have better community and a better environment and change my job or whatever. Like there's all of these different things because we as living systems, complex living systems, you, you can't apply a mechanistic fix to any of these living systems. You know, it's the, it's the same thing if you think of a forest that's, that's uh, got a disease or something. You can't just, like, spray a, a, a chemical to d- destroy the disease and expect that to work because it'll probably have a, a whole host of other consequences associated with that. Um, so what, basically what in regenerative agriculture... Um, 
the, the way that the people who are most involved in it, they, they put it on, they, they use a holistic context for themselves and their own interpersonal decisions, especially as like families, um, which is really cool because it, it allows them to ask a question and think of as many possible outcomes as possible. And that also requires that they have to be brutally honest with a lot of those outcomes. You know, it's not this, it's, it's, you're, you're presupposing that you're probably going to be wrong. Um, which I think is very missing from mm -hmm. our modernity. Most people presume that they're right about everything. And it's like, actually yeah. for the most part, we're mostly wrong. <clears throat> um, but so, the, the, um, but, but then it's like in the context of regenerative agriculture, it's, it's looking at the piece of land as a complex ecosystem. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily about just trying to, to attack certain metrics, like how much carbon can we sequester in the soil? How much water can we infiltrate in the soil? It's more about looking at every single health indicator and working toward that with the expectation that you're probably going to be wrong about some things, but working, but it's about being creative, being really, really thoughtful about the ecosystem and also having a really deep intimacy with that ecosystem. And I think that, um, Holism and intimacy are actually very, very importantly related because it's, it's the same thing with ourselves, right? If we want to view ourselves from a holistic perspective, we actually have to like know who the fuck we are and listen to our bodies and listen to ourselves and be aware of our triggers, be aware of the things that are our past and have worked through those things in order to understand how to best move forward with ourselves. Um, but yeah, so I think holism just provides a framework that... Com that allows for complexity and the problem with a lot of the world is that we have we have far uh we, we we've gone too far in the name of like logos you know and the the logos being the science uh pragmatism which which leads into like a, a patriarchal very um very logic-based society where everything mm -hmm. then is about data points and I think that the thing with holism is that it 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 says that, yeah, those data points exist, but there's also these other hosts of things that we actually don't know and we can't predict because the system is so complex that we do one action and a myriad of other actions will happen. And so it's about not viewing these systems mechanistically, not viewing them through this lens of, of like this sort of puritanical science that uh, doesn't allow for the, the mystery of things. Mm -hmm. But I, I, to me, I think it's, it's just, it's, profoundly helped just in interacting with people and you know it has a whole host of benefits in my opinion yeah so even if we were let's say to shift the entire agricultural system to a regenerative system I mean I would argue like that's not fucking possible within the current context of our world but why is it that that quote-unquote solution pretty quickly in starting out on this project to you uh, you re you realized that was a falsity, like that that one thing could not single-handedly save the planet. I'm curious, like, why why you had that realization? Well, so it, it, it started with this one interview that we had. Well, we actually, he didn't allow us to film it, which is like, it, it, it's hard <laughs> because he literally, this, this guy was seriously the most pivotal person in our entire project. Mm -hmm. um, but basically it came to the question of carbon because you know there's so much there's so much about uh regenerative agriculture that's about carbon sequestration which is a good thing it is it's an important thing and regenerative agriculture is a step in the right direction 100% um 
But the problem with it is that I feel like there's like a sort of a false narrative going around that that's all we need to do to solve climate change is get the carbon out of the atmosphere when it's like, it's so, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And they think that it's like, oh, this is a thing we can just take out of the sky and put it into the ground and that's going to be, that's, it's, it's fixed, it's over. Um, while that is a good thing and while this is something that we absolutely need to be promoting, it's, there, there's just more complexity to all of this that is really important for people to understand. And it goes down to the core of who we are as people. Um, and, and, and the earth isn't going to heal necessarily through this, through, through one mechanical fix. It's like, yeah, we, we could do regenerative agriculture and that would be awesome. And, but, but having that be available to everyone in the world or mostly everyone in the U.S., because this is like, you know, it's, it's a broad thing. Um, if, it's, if it still provides people with the ability to just to negate all of the other shit that's happening and just go to the store and make one choice in their lives that provides them with the, the solution and the answer, that doesn't solve mm-hmm. the real problem that is that all of these issues are coming from within us, spreading out into the collective, and then thus are causing us to harm the earth. And so, you know, it's, it's not about just changing the, the consumption of your diet. It's about, also about changing the consumption of the shit that you buy and being considerate of, like, you know, which slaves made your clothes or, you know, it's, it's, it's all of these things. Yeah. And it's not about being – it's not about, like, not participating. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. it's about, it's about well, the awareness. Yeah. I was going to say I think it can be both, right? Like, I see what you're saying in the sense that let's say – and again, this is not plausible within the current structure of our world, but let's say that all food was produced in a regenerative way. If we still have people living in cities who have like never stepped foot on a farm and never touched soil and never like seen an animal and don't understand how the food was produced, then the fact that they're just going to the store and buying this other product, similar to going to the store and buying an organic product or like a biodynamic product, um, if you in your own life aren't participating in, I think those same sort of like organizing principles, then one, we're at risk of that never happening, that we can all have access to regenerative food. We're also at risk of them. Let's say, even if we were of it, just going back to the way that it was, because obviously the agricultural system was just created as a symptom of like the way in which we live and view the world and exist in the world. Um, right. And yeah, it's it, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, it's, 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 not, not that I think that any of these regenerative farmers that I've met, because they're the coolest people I've ever met, um, it would ever happen. But it's like they, they, a lot of them have expressed fear about it becoming co-opted in the same, same way that the organic movement mm-hmm. became and having this meaninglessness to it. Um, you know, and I, and I, think, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, this, this, this conversation definitely has to be in the context of the fact that, um, you know, if, if, we, if we scaled our population down, then yeah, this this could actually be really, really, really powerfully helpful. Um, scale down our population and our consumption. Um, but those things kind of have to exist with it for it to work. Because mm-hmm. yeah, if we if we have this increasing population of of ten million pe- or ten billion people, and most of those people are residing in these uh, urban areas where they're having to import all of their goods, it doesn't it doesn't allow for that real regeneration to happen. And, you know, and it's, it's like you were saying before with Planet of the Humans, it's really hard to talk about this overpopulation thing because people do automatically assume like it's like, oh, we need to genocide people and that and, and that it's like, 
oh, you're being racist because the most populated countries on planet Earth are India and China and you want to exterminate the Chinese and Indian people. And it's like, no, the, the people who are destroying the planet are us. Like, yeah. it's, it's the people in the West that live yeah. far beyond their means and consume more than anybody else and, right. and still have a ton of children and still are having a growing population. We need to make the choice as humans in this time to really dial that back. Um, right. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this, like, horrific, you know, fascist thing that everyone is, like, always dramatically proclaiming it to be. <laughs> no, like, just incentivize not having children, for example. Um, yeah. Which, of course, you know, like, you know, I look at this and I see, like, you know, we have all these people in power, like, the top 1% making all this fucking money. And they're all benefiting off of the system, right? Like the reason they're wealthy is because that they've learned how to work the system that we currently have to their advantage. And whether or not you're a part of that 1% or you're just at a point in your life where it's easier for you to just like accept and follow the status quo and, and also the myth that like our civilized world is better than it was before we fucked it up. Um, and that it's too big to fail kind of Yeah, and, and that's a reaction I... Yes, exactly. And that's a reaction I get all the time, which is like, so for example, I live now in rural Colorado and it's a lot easier for me because I don't live in an urban center to acquire local organic pastured goods to eat. So like I, we bought a whole fucking cow in a couple hours away, for example. And, um, and also it's just, it's easier and more fun and more fulfilling for me to buy local food that I know where it came from and actually talk to people. And like, I buy bread that like this woman makes, you know, a couple mm -hmm. streets down and we buy pizza again, that's like made here. And like, we know where the flour came from. It's all this shit. Um, and I have these conversations with people who are still like, let's say living in cities, buying food at grocery stores, not super familiar with this, not vegetarians, vegans who think they're doing the right thing. When we get down to the nitty gritty of this, which to me is, we cannot solve these problems within the current system. The answer I get is like, bull, but we don't have any control over that. Like this is the system, which to me is the victimhood mentality. Like it's not only victimhood mentality, but it's fucking lazy mentality. Like yeah. you, especially privileged white people who are making a bunch of money, like you do have the capacity actually to like sign up even for like a farm box that's like gathers local regenerative products from your local environment and sends them to you but even that is like too complex or too much of an imposition to your sort of rigid conventional worldview um and that's what really gets me is like that that's the excuse all the time like well this is this is what we have so therefore we have to work within that system and for sure like I'm a realistic person I understand that I don't know, unless all of these systems are, are like revolutionized and changed. And if, and only if we decrease population, could we do any of this stuff? But the unlikelihood of that still doesn't make me accept it. Like, and doesn't make me say, okay, well, fine, whatever. Like, yes, I'll just work within the system. Um, and I, well, and I, you, I wonder, go ahead. I was just going to say, you, you, you eliminate your agency if you do that. If you, if you're like, right. Exactly. Oh, I'm just going to assume that all of these systems are going to eventually work in in the favor of the planet. And I just don't think that that's a, a wise or mature way to be viewing these things. I think that right. we need to be taking some individual responsibility on how we deal with these things. And, you know, localizing your food system is a huge thing to do. Um, yeah. 
and and I think that uh, you know these these narratives that come from this sort of like urban uh, urban liberal vegan kind of uh, worldviews, it is it is a bit lazy to 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 go to start on the ladder of like justice and humanity and changing the world and be, fixing the planet, and then to reach the actual peak of it, and then just give up and just be like. Okay, no, like this is enough. I see that the I see that the 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 you know the actual peak is like way farther ahead, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna see it. Everyone who starts with a vegan and vegetarian like idea or mentality, they're starting from the right place. Like they they have the right intentions in mind. The problem is is that it's being co opted by these gigantic corporations like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, rather than it being like hmm okay. Instead of me giving my dollars to these gigantic conglomerates that are using, you know, Monsanto uh, soybeans to create food for me, um, maybe I should consider looking into regenerative agriculture and a, a food a food system that's local to me. Even if it's not regenerative agriculture, having a localized food system gives you that sovereignty of knowing where your food comes from. Whereas if if you're just like oh well I get my food from the grocery store and it you know it, my impossible meat has like a billion different random things in it that I don't I don't question it it's it's food, um, it's it it it, it it it's taking away the agency that we all have and the responsibility that we all have to like grow up like we have to yeah. be willing to grow up and actually ask these hard questions and the hard question is is it's like you're going to be killing animals regardless of what food you eat. There's going to be things that die in the, in that food and maintaining this victim mentality is, is this is akin to being like, I don't harm things. I am infallible. I am perfect. I don't do yeah. that. But it's like, no, you do. You're culpable. You know, yeah. you're, compl you're, you're complicit in the system when you function within the system. And I, yeah. and I'm not perfect. I'm not, I'm also not saying that people need to be perfect immediately and like, you know, create a homestead right now and, you know, start raising their yeah. own animals. But I think the fundamental thing that we are trying to say with this project is you got to at least be thinking about it. Change, I want to change the culture where people are willing to just dig their heels in yeah. when the truth is ahead of them. The, the, the real, the hard truth is ahead of them, but dig, dig their heels in and be like, nope, I don't have to touch that. I can live my urban life my urban right. nine to five lifestyle that I, I consume whatever I want, but because I, I don't eat meat, I can continue just living this life. And it's like, I feel like that's actually a really severe liability. Um, you know, and we've talked about like the, the, the collapse that we do feel is inevitable is inevitable. And I think that those are the people that are going to suffer the most when yeah. they realize that, Oh, I am completely a hundred percent dependent on these systems these systems that have been destroying the planet and I don't know how to function without it. I don't function, know how right. to function outside of that system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like if we could agree, which I don't think we, well, we do, but uh, most people, I don't think agree that the problem is holistic. It obviously means that the solution has to be holistic as well. And that requires, it does require sacrifice and it does require self-reflection and it does require grief. And it does require like, asking yourself really hard questions of like, can I legitimately say I'm working to make something better if I'm doing X, Y, Z? It reminds me, I just had this weird memory of like, I worked for a, a very um, successful fucking organic juice company for a while in my twenties. And 
the company had a lot of money, like they got a lot of investment. It was, it was well-managed. It like, there was a lot of young creative people. It was a product at the time, like juice cleanses were just coming on board and raw juice and like pressure processes, um, pasteurization and all this stuff. And everything sort of lined up. And I ran the marketing department and I had a ton of money and a ton of resources to do like awesome shit. And then I left that company and I started freelancing for other companies. And every single one of them was like, I want you to do for us what you did at Suja, this juice company you worked for. And I was like, okay, well, I need a team of 12 and a million dollars a year in budget. You know, like you can't get the same result without putting in the same amount of effort and without putting in, like, I wish, you know, I wish it didn't take like all that money and all of that, all of those, those people in order to create something amazing. But that's just how the world works. Like you can't, you can't ask for the same result without putting in the effort and actually making the sacrifice that's required in order to do that. And I feel like, you know, like I have this debate with a family member who is a vegetarian, who is very, very intelligent, very smart. Um, and we agree about a lot of things with this thing, like we keep butting heads against uh, about for a, a myriad of reasons. But you know, to me, what seems clear is this person like lives in a city, plans on having children, um, and is, I think, very committed to keeping their life the way that it is in many ways, because that feels right. And because that's where the friends are, and that's where the support is, and that's where the job is, and that's where all of these things are. But to me, it's like we and the, and the same could apply to like Bill Gates, for example, who I think has all the best intentions. But I feel like, you know, the solutions that Bill Gates is proposing allow for Bill Gates to remain Bill Gates. You know, like if if we were actually if Bill Gates was actually going to make like significant suggestions or change in order to fix the planet, that would mean he would not be Bill Gates anymore. He wouldn't have that much money. He wouldn't be living the lifestyle that he's living. He wouldn't be promoting the types of quote unquote solutions that he's promoting. Um, To me, it's like, if we're not, if we're not willing, and this is with this regenerative agriculture, planetary shit or anything else, like how could we achieve equality for the sexes, for example, if we're not willing to sit down and have a conversation with the opposite sex, or we're not willing to actually like grieve the trauma that we suffered and realize that we have no one to like that blaming someone for the rest of our lives does not lead us to a happy, more fulfilled place. Um, And I think, yeah, like I just see that everywhere. It's like, we don't want to confront the pain. And so we create these circles around which we don't have to face that but which are doing in my mind like literally nothing if not harming us farther because we're just like telling us telling ourselves this lie yeah and allowing ourselves to right like it allows us to remain complacent If, if you tell yourself that the world is against you and that you've just had shitty luck and you know and you you take away your agency then 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 yeah, you're going to be stuck there. You're going to be completely stuck there and not empowered and not actually be making any change. You're just going to be talking circles around yourself. And absolutely this is happening um, in, in all, in so many rungs of society, which is why like moving toward this regenerative mindset and moving toward regenerative agriculture is a humongous step in the right direction. Because the thing about it too, is it's like, I, I don't think that people consider when when we were doing this project, we drove through the Central Valley of California, 
hot as fuck, like 105 degrees at like nine o'clock in the morning. And there are migrant workers outside picking peppers, picking strawberries, picking, you know, hunched over having this incredibly monotonous job. It's basically slavery. And that's supposed to be the peaceful food. They're out, out in the heat at like nine o'clock in the morning. That's, that's like the heat. It's like that hot. And these people, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that these like white, you know, privileged people who are vegetarian and vegan are understanding. It's like, that's what your food is costing. That's, that's, that's a mere part of what your food is costing is that it's forcing those people to be, to have a lifestyle that you would never want. You would never have, you would never have that. You have outsourced it willingly. We all have to people who we are like, you know, it's, it's, we're dehumanizing them in, in a myriad of ways. Um, but then at the same time, you know, it's like you, you can, you can support a regenerative farm that is local to your, your region and those people are being paid well. They're living a nice, happy, leisurely life that it's, you know, they're working hard, but they're work- they have a life with purpose. There's not monotony. They get to be creative. They get to be scientific scientists. They get to be biologists. They get to be all of these things, philosophers. Yeah. And, and, and to me, I just feel like, you know, every, every instance that I've looked at um, plant agriculture, it's just this horrifying commodifying of nature whereas if you go to regenerative farms it's every every being is serving its role and I think that there's a lot to be said about how people want to create these illusions around themselves because they're kind of they're insulating themselves from from life and death both Mm -hmm. of those things are the two of the most terrifying prospects to us in in existence you know which is funny because it's like we all die like that's uh, the one thing in the world that is like absolutely 100% certain is that we're gonna die and that also like we have other beings have to die for us to live and you know we we can't all just live in perpetuity it doesn't work that way and that is something that we've gotten so far away from in our modern in our modern western culture I think that there's a little bit more of an understanding um, in other cultures around the world around death that have a more of a, of a relationship with death, but specifically in right. the, the sterilized Western culture that w- we live in, we don't have that relationship. And so I think, it, I think it, that pathology ripples out into many aspects of our existence because, you know, the, the other side of the fear of death is really the fear of life because it's the fear of, it's really the fear of taking risks and living your life to its fullest potential that is part of the fear of death. You know, because you're 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 afraid you're so afraid to die that you don't do the things that make you feel alive. That you know, mm-hmm. it's it's you're you're trapped in that victim cycle, the victim of life because death exists, rather than viewing it as a hundred percent a part of nature and the 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 laws by which nature has written the way that the world is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I th- I think it's really it's really hard for a lot of people to accept that because you know, the, it's, it's a, this manifestation of, of the denial of death is the people who are refusing to look at the, the complexity of our, our issue and are willing to, to embrace these easy answers. They don't want to come to terms with the fact that everything is going to fall the fuck apart and you don't want to be in the crosshairs of that if you can. Mm-hmm. So that means sacrifice. That means you have to change your life. That means you have to change the way you see things. That means that you have to, you know 
take take only what you need and take less and really be prepared. And I don't think a lot of people are willing to have that conversation because they're stuck in this place of like, no, it's not going to happen. Like, you know, maybe, maybe it'll happen, but not in my lifetime, you know? And, yeah. and it's the same thing with, with relationships, you know, I can't be the reason that my relationship is terrible. Like, no, you know, everybody's yeah. stuck in this severe denial right. and it's completely unproductive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all a dance. Like, I, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, I don't know. It's, it's so hard to talk about these things because they're so fucking complex and there's so many different facets to them. Yeah. Um, but this whole idea of like, I mean, it's ironic to me, right. That the, the, the mainstream narrative around climate change is that we, um, that we caused this problem to some extent. And therefore we need to like use the same sorts of strategies to fix it. Uh, and I think that sort of coincides with this feeling that I think at least the moral side of the vegan vegetarian thing of like, you know, oh, well, a ruminant has the same like mental capacity as like uh, a psycho, a psychologically like a child, like a, a five year old. So should we just go around killing five year olds? Because and to me, it's like I don't the psychological capacity of a of a living creature to me is irrelevant related to the system working overall or death in general so like i don't really see your point that you're gonna you don't want to kill one cow so instead you kill a fucking entire ecosystem to set up like monocropped soy which is killing a bajillion animals both like of a five-year-old capacity and animals that you're not even like smart enough to discern exist you know like the the uh the the microbiome of the planet and the soil and these things that like if you killed that in your own body you would fail to function and it's just this posturing i feel like of humans and of the resources that we have as humans as all powerful and separate from everything else and i feel like i don't know i I think probably both of us had a lot of these ideas and feelings prior to reading Braiding Sweetgrass, but I feel like that really like hit the nail on the head, you know, that we play a role in a whole and it's sort of irrelevant the extent to which we have power to, you know, destroy or not to destroy the environment around us. Like that's irrelevant as far as what our role is in the system, you know, which could be much less important in certain um, ecological systems than like a tree or a fish, you know, <laughs> like we might not have the control that we think we do, you know, we're just there to play one little role. And, right, and I, I think and we've, you know, Oh, sorry, you go ahead. I keep no, interrupting no, you. <laughs> I had nothing else to say, truly. I'm just blabbering. <laughs> well, you know, it, it makes me think of um, this interesting paradox of uh, speciesism that the, the, the species, the speciesism that is, um, that vegans and vegetarians in this plant-based movement are accusing everybody else of exhibiting. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, they're not seeing it exactly being manifested in themselves actually more so because one, the the thing, the thing about it is that the, it's, as you were saying, the soil is actually, it's it's alive. There are animals in the soil that are making all of this work. Everything about the world and how it functions is because of the soil. And also, 
like plants are sentient beings. Plants protect each other. They do, uh, you know, they, they have all kinds of interactions and Fucking relationships talk to with each my, other. With, yeah. 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 They, they yeah. have a lot of, of intelligence. Um, and you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of these, these, um, movements also don't really like necessarily acknowledge the intelligence of like fish and all, you know, they're more, they're more concerned about the animals that are mammals that look more like us. Um, or, or like, you know, fowl, uh, uh, birds and whatnot. Um, but the reality is, it's like, when, if you, if you're, if you're, if you feel truly that everyone who is eating meat is speciesist, but then you are doing what you said you were doing, but what people are doing, which is buying food that is eliminating ecosystems. And that is eliminating the soil. It's requiring uh, petroleum-based fertilizers to keep that soil even functioning to create one thing for humans only. Everything else on that land, other animals, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, Lear Keith said it in our interview that we had, that we just posted on our podcast, um, she's like, if that lettuce is worth eating, things are going to want to come eat it at, at, at the farm. And guess what that farmer is going to do? They're going to kill that deer. They're going to kill that bunny. They're going to, you know, and, yeah. or they're going to spray the entire place down with so much chemicals that nothing can live there. Nothing can right. grow other than this one crop that has been genetically modified to, to be able to endure all of these extra inputs. Right. And, and to me, it's just like, it's so mind blowing how it's like, you're a speciesist if you eat a cow. And I'm like, well, what about like, I am acknowledging and honoring the lives of literally everything that exists on this planet and understanding that death is part of life and I need to kill things to consume things and, right. and, and to live and to be healthy yeah. and to do good if, things in, in my world. Right. I, I, I can't escape that. I can't escape the death part. So I might as well do it. Well, choose right. an animal that had right. a good life. Right. And the death obviously like is a part of the process, right? Like people don't live forever. Animals don't live forever. Plants don't live forever. So, so death is a part of the process. And in many cases, that death in and of itself is allowing the ecosystem to continue regenerating and functioning properly, you know? Exactly. Um, so it's honestly, obviously we're not saying like, oh yeah, we just, we support, you know, CAFO meat and we want to continue to right. eat conventionally raised meat where yes for sure there is no ecosystem there just as there isn't mm -hmm. for like pesticide ridden monocropped plants like that's not doing what we're promoting what we're saying is if you eat you produce and consume in a regenerative way then that then the production and the consumption is a integral part of the process you know like that's right. the whole point like it doesn't the system doesn't like stop somewhere and there are certain aspects of it that don't fit within the greater whole. It's like you can't have the system to begin with without each individual step. And I feel like that's where people don't get it. And, and I do think that's just like a literacy issue in many ways, Absolutely. you know. Um, Absolutely. So There's a on, yeah, I was going to say on that note, like I'm curious what you recommend or would recommend to people that do want to ground themselves in more of a holistic way of looking at the world. Because obviously there are going to be people that don't have the opportunity to like move to Colorado and buy a cow. Um, so I'm curious what you would say to someone that said like, okay, well, how can I sort of expand my worldview or make a difference in my life that I may or may not have that much control of uh, right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, cause obviously it's, it's so, there's so much variance across the board of, the way yeah. that people are going to be be able to experience this. 
um, you know, it's a big, that's a big reason why we're doing this project in the first place is to provide a resource for people who don't have direct access to being able to go to a farm and actually have that experience. Um, I do, I do think that people need to get out of, um, it, it all comes from within, right? Like in order to have this, this, uh, holistic perspective of the world, you really have to be willing to, um, to look at the world really, really critically and yourself really, really critically. And I think a lot of that can come from, um, recognizing, uh, things that are like, uh, group thinky and where every, you know, that there's, there's a, a single narrative that is being perpetuated and that narrative, uh, you know, for me, it always felt incomplete. And so I wanted to, I, I'm, I'm just like a naturally curious person. So for me, it was like, I want to investigate this. Um, and I think that some people are maybe don't have the time to be quite as curious as I, as I am. Um, however, I do think that a, a lot of it is about just paying attention and allowing yourself to really let go of having a dog in the race, if that makes sense. Don't, if you have an opinion, if you're curious about something and you have an opinion about something, be very, very willing for that to fluctuate and change because what if you're if you're riding if you're existing in your life with any kind of a dogmatism that disallows a holistic worldview mm -hmm. um and so i think that if, if the more people can l like lean away from things that that manifest as groupthink or um monoculturism or you know however you want to describe it things that it's like everybody agrees with this thing and this is what it is i think people need to see that stuff and like run the other way because that that type of mentality is very authoritarian um and and also like very fundamentalist um but it's happening it's it's happening in all realms of our existence right now especially with with all of the social media that we see and all of the um you know the the political fuckery that's happening all the time yeah. um but but yeah i think i think being re really 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 open like and it's a heart. It's a practice. It's not something that just comes naturally because we, we all kind of, we have our biases. We have our tribalistic nature about us that causes us to bristle when we feel like we're being threatened, like our worldview is being threatened or our beliefs are being uh, threatened. But I think that um, a lot of like mindfulness can allow you to understand those, you know, the, the, the multiplicity of things. Um, you know, and the, and the thing about it is it's like, you can start practicing these things and things that aren't necessarily associated with climate change right. or the world. You can practice it in your relationships where you hear the person, you listen to what the person is saying, especially if they have a grievance with you, you're able to validate that their experience is unique and different to yours. At the same time, understanding that you have your own perspective, having, having that and allowing yourself to view people in these complex terms will then allow you to translate a much more mature and healthy way of looking at the world, which unfortunately uncovers a lot of hard truths. Um, and I think also just ha allowing hard truths into your life and being willing to engage with them is really just imperative. I think in general for, for uh, development in this world, you have right. to be willing to not live in these fantasies and to question beyond the illusion that you're being presented Right. Yeah. I, I was hoping you would say that because I do think it's like an inside out process rather than an outside in process. And like, oh, it, yeah. you know, it reminds me a bit of like I spent all of my 20s committing myself to like eating a 
pretty strict paleo diet and like had all of these tenets of like, you know, regeneration. And like, I had all of these values, but the fact is like internally I was fucked up in a shitty relationship, living a life I didn't want to live. And so there was no amount of like organic food or unprocessed food or like regenerative meat that was going to eliminate the fact that I was unhealthy and that I was toxic. Like I was just covering stuff up. And I feel like that's so much of what people are doing. It's just like, if the story, if this story that you're telling is making it seem like the problem just goes away and it's an easy solution and easy fix, then that's probably not the right story. Like you just think you can, yeah. Like, okay. So you just eat, a vegan diet now and you don't have to think about or consider the planet or your choices outside of that that's just not how the world works like whether that has to do with like your internal self your relationships the world around you it's just like that that type of overly simplistic solution doesn't work you know and I think the two of us are pretty prime examples of that because I feel like we've done a lot to expand the narrative and complexify the narrative. And yet we're still very conscious of the fact that, you know, my actions in buying a cow or your actions in eating a paleo diet or making this film, like do not solve the problem necessarily, you know? Um, And that it's just, you know, I think, I I think I'm the same way. I've always approached things with an extremely like curious um, demeanor and, Uh, to me part of the like moving closer toward holism is actually part of the enjoyment not just like picking an easy solution and never thinking about it again you know I think it's like that entire process of and way of living is the point not finding every single solution you can find so that you don't ever have to think about it or try harder yeah I mean the thing is it's like it's a religiosity right like that's that's what religion provides for people is like this is the Mm -hmm. answer this is the answer to everything you've ever wondered and you know while there are some some okay things about religion the the reality of it is is that our existence on earth is not meant to be about finding the answers it's about interacting with the the journey of 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 the unknown yeah and like um yeah for for me I, i think it's really fun too i i actually I feel like I've had more fun in my brain and in myself in the past year just by embracing all of the nuance and complexity because every it makes everything like this puzzle that you're trying to mm-hmm. kind of like witness and observe. And yeah, like the, the times where I was kind of stuck in more of a dogmatic narrative, I didn't even realize I was, you know? I for right. for a long time I was one of those people that was like there's no good reason for guns there's no good reason for like hunt like I was like oh hunting that's, there's no good reason for that and 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 now obviously I have a much more nuanced view about it and um you know and I think I think also like the, it, this is mostly speaking for me but I feel like this could be um, applicable to a lot of people I think that the way that our civilization is set up is literally specifically for that dumbing down of that critical thinking. Because it, I, the, the time that I was the most dogmatic in my life was when I was in college and I was very insulated um, for, from different perspectives. Whereas when I was in high school, I was very nuanced. I was very like, cause I had, I was like growing up in this like Mormon, like, you know, I was like at a school that was like 85% Mormon. And there were a lot of 
like opinions that I disagreed with, but I was able to witness the, those, the difference of opinion. And, you know, I was arguing with teachers all the time and like, you know, trying mm -hmm. to be like, no, you're, you're simplifying this issue too much. And it's, mm -hmm. so it, it wasn't until college when I was insulated that I really felt like, you know, I was insulated in a liberal city that suddenly I wasn't critically thinking anymore. I was taking, uh, my, my environment was not conducive to this expansive learning that I think I was hungry for. And so that manifested in a lot of depression for me, uh, among other things that were like, you know, traumatized from childhood, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I felt very uh, uh, disempowered at that time of my life. And I wasn't questioning the narratives because everybody ag agreed with the same narrative. It was like, okay, like there's no, there's nothing to disagree with. And it was so boring. It was so st sterile and stagnant and weird. And like, there was nothing exciting about it. And then when you went, when I started opening my eyes to this com com completely complex view of the world, I haven't felt depressed like that. I haven't felt stuck like that. I haven't felt, you know, stuck in this misery space. I've had a lot of grief, mm -hmm. but I, 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 I haven't been apathetic about the world right actually. And I think, I think that's the thing that I want to convey to people is like acknowledging that the world isn't going to be fixed by some easy mechanistic solution that shouldn't bring you to a place of like the helplessness and despair. It actually gives you a lot of agency to be like, okay, this is then my responsibility to take ownership of my life and how I'm going to be ready for how this is all going to unfold. I'm not reliant on these big systems. I'm not reliant on these corporations anymore. I'm reliant on myself. And that gives you a great deal of empowerment because then you get to invent the world that you live in. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who don't have access to that. And I don't know what the answer is for that. Yeah. I, I wish I, I wish I, because, you know, it's, it's easy for me to talk from my place of privilege that it's like, okay, like I could probably figure out how to afford to buy a piece of land or something or move on to someone else's land. I, like, but... I think at the, the end of the day, though, that's why we're making this project is to really have an honest conversation about this stuff so that mm -hmm. people aren't left with this illusion that I believe to be a lie, that there is something that that one there's one thing that can happen that's going to change everything and that's going to make people not have to be afraid. Because I, I do think that people should should engage with the fear and be afraid. Yeah. It's, it's actually really like not helpful to bypass that fear. It's yeah. <laughs> all it does is allow you to remain stuck and in, in a, in a place of apathy Yeah. because yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just think like by placing yourself within a holistic context within like you are one spoke on the wheel or like one rain drop in the ocean. Um, it also removes the pressure to find a solution. Like I'm not even, I don't, I mean, to say I don't care would be a lie maybe, but I'm not really tied to, and I don't really think about like whether or not I'm going to find the right answer or that we're going to find the solution to all these problems within my lifetime. It's like, I'm so grateful to just play my little role, even if that role at the moment. And the only thing I can do is like ask leading questions or something, you know, like, yeah. um, it's like, it's not really, I think I, I remember feeling sort of despair and, and feeling like if I don't, if we don't find a solution to these problems and if I don't participate in that, and if I don't see that in my lifetime, then somehow like my life was a waste. And 
through going through my own dark night of the soul, I started to realize like, hold on a second, I'm really grateful for the place that I'm in and the role that I get to play within this much larger, much greater narrative um, than I could ever even probably fathom. And I think, you know, I don't know, there's a weird sort of calm and groundedness in no longer being tied to finding answers and solutions and fixing problems, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think also there's, there's a, there's an egolessness to it too, right? Like, right. Um, if, if your ego is wrapped up in it, then yeah, you want to find a solution because you want to survive. You want to live. Yeah. You want to, you want to solve it. Yeah. Um, yeah. the way that I view it is like the world that I envision and that I am working toward hopefully being part of helping create I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to live to see that thing. That's, right. but that's not why I'm doing it. I, like I'm not, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for, you know, future generations so that they have a place to live and they have a place to go and they have a life. That is what I wish that I maybe would have had, you know? Um, right. I think it's about like, we were born in this time for a reason. And I think that it's actually a pretty noble cause to, to be like, I was born here to try to make the world a better place for the people that are going to come after me and be a part of the greater, the greater movement toward that. Um, you know, like it's like I, the way that I I eventually want to adopt children, I'm not going to have children because there are plenty of children on this planet. I don't need to birth one myself, but I do want to adopt children one day because I actually do think that I'd be a good mother eventually. (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I imagine, I imagine the world for my children's children and what I want that to look like. And that's what I work toward because I'm, I'm going to probably live a really hard life. We probably are all are. And, you know, and, and comparatively, like I'm probably going to have it pretty easy compared to the majority of people on this planet. When, when this shit really starts to hit the fan, you know, the, the real people who are going to be suffering are the people that are in, you know, these countries that our government has taken over and put in puppet pu- puppet dictatorships and have you know turned them into uh, commodities and resources for us to extract and take from like you know I think Indonesia Cambodia like all, all of these countries that we just we use them for their resources and don't mm-hmm. pay them enough and don't give them any kind of uh, a- a- ability to really sort of survive the coming storm. The people who are going to survive are going to be here. Right. And it makes me really mad because it's like, those are the people, like, I, I don't think that there's people, there's enough people who are trying to survive in that sort of ethical way of like, you know, it's like, you, I just, I just, I just have this horrible image of like fucking like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk just like flying to Mars and being like, bye fuckers. Like, you know, and just leaving, <laughs> like, like taking the 1% and leaving us all here. Yeah. And it just is like so nasty. But then at the same time, I'm like, I really do believe that people, if, if people motivate to really change their lives, then in, in the way of like embracing more community and prioritizing better community and relationship to land, a relationship to nature. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a net benefit for everyone involved, right? Like everyone mm-hmm. who participates in a life like that, they're going to be happier. They're going to be more fulfilled because mm-hmm. they're more, they're, they're living more in line with with their their animal nature their their human nature that we earned over you know two million years of evolution and you also will probably be able to 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 you know suffer through the storm and survive 
if you have those right. things that if you have th that that mentality in place that you're not reliant on the systems that we are existing under right. elon musk yeah. isn't going to save us going to mars isn't going to save no. us like that's that's such a dumb like <laughs> try to this it's just way opting to solve out. it yeah i mean it, re yeah. it reminds me of this quote that i really love which is easy choices hard life hard choices easy life and you said yeah. something about how like you know i think we're going to live a hard life and i you know, picture all these sort of like one percenters taking some spaceship out to Mars. And to me, it's like, I would never choose that life, you know, yeah. and, and I and I would argue too, I think, you know, hardship, right, is so meaningful. And to me, like, I'd rather be here, you know, weathering the storm and experiencing the spectrum of joy and love and grief and sadness, than I would be to just like, opt out and construct my life around these very narrow set of you know, um, value signifiers and like, you know, oh, if I can be rich and happy, then my life is good. And I, you know, I think that's another sort of like, um, patriarchal, like colonialist mindset. Like we always think about these people who are like struggling in like severe poverty in other countries as being unhappy and unfulfilled and, and, um, you know, quote unquote poor by our standards but by their standards it's like yeah okay we we live in squalor compared to you but like we have these really strong communal networks and we're really happy and we understand that like sadness is a part of life and you know to well, me I'm only... much more good oh I was just gonna say that they're 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 only poor because of the global market you right. know like right. and, and, right. and so so yeah so when you view poverty in the sense of uh money that's that's because of the way that we're doing things that's because of the system that these people are 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 living in the ways that they are but yeah they, they have these yeah. community I've I, it struck me so much when I first went to Cambodia how much happier everyone was than I was yeah. And that was a very yeah. big moment for me realizing like, wow, material wealth doesn't mean shit. Have it, totally. but, but having a community, having a village of people that love you and care for you, that's what makes you happy. Having a life of purpose mm -hmm. makes you happy. Like, Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. I saw this great post by Jimmy Chin. He's like a mostly climbing photographer, but he posted this like sort of throwback photo of him sitting in a trunk of a Subaru like many years ago, sort of surrounded by all this like gear. And the caption said something like, you know, what we used to say is that there is a leisure class, leisure class on either end of the economic spectrum. And it's like, you know, like, and us, I feel like we're perfect examples of that. It's like, we're not fucking wealthy by any means, like our resources, of course, obviously, we're much more privileged than like a lot of the population. But considering like, you know, I, I was making over a hundred thousand dollars like by myself working my ass off and doing everything that I thought I was supposed to be doing by conventional standards to be happy and fulfilled. And it wasn't until I like made zero dollars and like just jumped into the unknown of like, I have no idea how I'm going to support myself or like I have, I started this podcast to like no longer have any credentials in a career. Like what the fuck? Like it was at that moment that I felt fulfilled and happy and it was by, you know, no means um, representative of what the conventional culture says you need to be happy and fulfilled. Um, right. So anyway, yeah, we're probably yeah, preaching exactly. to the choir. I feel like that's everyone. <laughs> yeah, <this> probably. <laughs> um, but I mean, okay, it's, well, it's so true, though. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I'm sure we could keep talking for six hours because like that's how we are. <laughs> but we'll save it for the next podcast. This so uh, yeah, so before we wrap up, um, tell everyone where they can find you and your project. And then I'm assuming you expected this question because <laughs> you listen to the podcast, but what book would yes. you recommend? <laughs> okay well first of all um the best place to find me is probably instagram even though i hate it i fucking hate instagram i just like it seriously social media just makes me want to die recently um but uh so my name is Marin morgan but my instagram handle is onyx moonlight because i <laughs> i chose that when i was like 18 and i was <laughs> being a little hippie um but more importantly than that um deathinthegarden.org is the website for our project. Um, I've been posting a ton of writing that I've done there, blogs, and just like all kinds of other resources. Um, We also have a podcast and that's available everywhere, also called Death in the Garden. And uh, at Death in the Garden on Instagram is another place where you can reach us. Um, And yeah, and also I've been, I've started to write on Medium. So if you look, if you type in my name, Marin Morgan on Medium, then you can find some writing that I've done there. I'm trying to get the courage to kind of identify as a writer. <laughs> so I'm like, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I've like written my whole life and it's been like the only thing I've ever been good at. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can call myself that. <laughs> but yeah, um, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Um, but okay. So it's, it's hard because honestly, dude, the best, the the two books that I've been recommending to people the most recently are Braiding Sweetgrass and Belonging because those yeah. those books have had such profound impacts on me. So I feel like kind of like wow, I sound like illiterate because like I don't read books because those are they're they're honestly my favorite books. Um, yeah. But also I think that one book that could be really helpful for people that's so quick and easy, and I, I, I'm sure a lot of people have said it, but just like the Four Agreements, I feel like is a good metric for just how to like maintain composure in the world and how to like slow yourself down just try to be a good person and move through the world with um a bit more intention and integrity and that's uh the four agreements by uh don miguel ruiz and yeah that one's a good one it's so short thanks (laughs) marin thanks anya (laughs) until next time Sounds good. Hello again. Thank you for listening to that conversation. I beg of you, please support Marin and her partner Jake in everything they are doing. They're fucking cool people and they are embarking on such an important journey. So I highly recommend checking out their website, their social media, reading Marin's writing on Medium and sharing it far and wide. Again, if you would like to support the show, uh, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. You will have access to exclusive WhatsApp group chats with other listeners, book clubs, patron-led workshops, t-shirts, stickers, contact lists. I cannot even name all of the perks because there are too many. If you don't have any money to afford to support in that way, I totally understand. Again, one way that you can support for free is to share episodes with your friends, hit subscribe on iTunes, scroll down, and leave some stars in a review. I am going to play you out today with a song called Home by Caribou. Reminds me of myself. Reminds me of Marin. Reminds me of all of us. All on this complex, different, but pretty fucking similar journey. Love you all. Talk to you next time. Oh, 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 oh,
just what she pleases Cause she's happy on her own And she picks up all the pieces She's going home Baby, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home Yeah, she's going home Baby, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home Thank you. 